Daniel chapter 11. I only have one slide I'm going to have up on the screen this morning. Daniel chapter 11. If you remember over the last couple of weeks, we are in the very final part of this book, the last three chapters of the book of Daniel. And in chapter 10, just by way of review to kind of put it all in a refreshing place in our minds, um, the angel has come to Daniel for the last time that we have recorded in the scriptures. And as we open up chapter 10, if you remember, Daniel is, is um, he's feeling all this consternation. He's praying. He's been fasting. He's, we've been seeing this in Daniel's life now ever since Daniel chapter 9 when he was still confused and trying to figure out the events of Daniel's uh, vision from chapter 7 and 8. And so he's just been disturbed and bothered and he wants to understand and he's kind of pressing in and he's trying to really spend time with the Lord and he just wants to understand because he wants to know what is going to be the future of God's people. What's going to be the future of the nation of Israel? And God has been so gracious to Daniel. He has rewarded Daniel so much for his, his holy living, his righteous lifestyle, his devotion to the Lord, um, his dedication to prayer and fasting. And so in chapter 10, we have this incredible episode where this angel comes and he talks to Daniel. If you remember, he had been held up for a couple weeks, that whole thing. And so in chapter 11, he begins to deliver this message that God had sent to Daniel. And you remember, this is a very important message. This is a message that literally the prince of the, the power of Persia or the prince behind the power of Persia tried to stop and not allow to come to Daniel. So anytime I teach this, this chapter, I'm like, I want to know. I, I want to hear, right? Because apparently this is a very important message. Now, the content of chapter 8 is, or excuse me, the content of chapter 11 is going to elaborate and expand upon the things that we saw back in chapter 8. And just by way of review, I'm not going to go back to the entire uh, vision of chapter 8, but if you remember in chapter 8, um, he is given a vision of a ram and a goat. And the ram is defeated by a goat that comes from the west. And if you remember, this goat had one long notable horn. Now, you've heard me talk about this ad nauseum by this point. So who is that goat with that one long horn? Who is it? Alexander the Great, right? So Alexander the Great comes riding in from the west to the east. He takes over the area, but his campaign does not last very long. He's only a, a world empire dictator for uh, just a span of, of just a few decades, and that's about it. And then right around the time that he's about 30 years old, this, this, this man dies, and this horn is broken off. And if you remember what happens, four other horns rise up. And, of course, this is a picture of those four generals um, in the Grecian army that rises up and takes over and, and divides out in four corners, if you will, what was the old Greek empire. So, uh, and then if you keep on reading a little bit later on, he begins to interpret these things for Daniel. Again, I'm reviewing chapter 8 here. And uh, these, this empire is divided amongst uh, Cassander, uh, which was one of his generals who took Macedonia and Greece, Lysimachus, who took Thrace and Bithynia and most of Asia Minor, and uh, you can see some of this on the, the map here behind me. Uh, Ptolemy, you guys have heard of the Ptolemies before. Ptolemy was one of his best generals, probably his most preeminent general out of all the four. He took Egypt uh, down in the south. And then Seleucus, which is going to be the main character that was, if you remember, he was the main character that was kind of laser-focused or zoomed in on in chapter 8. Well, guess what? You're going to see the same thing here in chapter 11. The Holy Spirit is going to take a lens and zoom in on Seleucus. Why? 
because we're going to speak again about a particular ruler that came out of the Seleucid Empire, Antiochus IV, also known as Epiphanes. Uh, if you remember a long time ago, I told you that his, his, uh, uh, his name was Epimenes, illustrious, right? But he liked to call himself Epiphanes, uh, the, the God one. He was the one who thought of, him, thought of himself as a God, if you will. Okay, so chapter 8 starts off really big, talks about the Greek Empire, um, shows how the Greek Empire is, is divided up into four, and then it laser focuses even more on the Seleucid Empire, and then it talks about the little horn. Does everybody remember the conversation about the little horn? This is after the four horns come up, and then it laser focuses on one of those four horns, which is the Empire of Seleucus, and then it laser focuses a little bit more, almost down to a microscopic level, and it wants you to pay attention to one guy, Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Why is this man so important? Because this man, this little horn, becomes a picture of the man of lawlessness that is going to be talked about later on in the book of Dan, or excuse me, the book of Matthew, chapter twenty-four, when Jesus talks about the end of the age. Um, Paul talks about this same individual in First Thessalonians chapter two when he talks about the man of lawlessness, and then the book of Revelation expands upon this man's career even more when John refers to him as the Antichrist that will arise at the end of the age. Um, if we were to take Daniel chapter 8 and outline chapter 8, verses 1 through 8 talks about Alexander the Great. Verses 20 through 22 is an interpretation of verses 1 through 7. Verses 9 through 14, laser focuses down to Antiochus Epiphanes. And then verses 23 through 25 begins to shift the language, if you will. If you remember in chapter 8, once we started talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, remember how we talked about prophetic language? How prophetic language is, it can be both and. It, it, it speaks of one person, but it, it, from a spiritual perspective, it begins to leap beyond that and, and starts to look even further down uh, the annals of history to laser focus in on what is going to be the antitype of that type, the full picture of that model, if you will. So <clears throat> in chapter 11 which is what we're going to get in here. If you want to outline it, let me give you a quick outline of chapter 11 if you want to mark this in your Bibles. <clears throat> Excuse me. In chapter 11, verses 1 and 2 is going to be about the Persian Empire. Verses 3 and 4 is going to be about the Greek Empire. Now, those first four verses sums up everything we talked about in chapter 8. Okay? So we're going to scoot right on by those verses pretty quickly. Verses 5 through 35, this is where the, the, the telescopic lens gets a little closer, and it's going to zoom in on one of those four kingdoms that came out of the Grecian Empire. It's going to focus in on the Seleucid Empire. And particularly, it's going to focus on this war that takes place. The, 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 the previous, about the 400 years up until the time of Jesus, let me see if I can remember how to do the laser pointer. Here we go. So let me get over here. So the Seleucid Empire here, this is the, the main one that we're going to be talking about. Antiochus Epiphanes is one of the rulers that's going to arise from this general area here. This is going to be the king of the north that's talked about all throughout the chapter. And he is constantly at war. Now I say he, there's many kings, right? There's many kings down the line of the Seleucid Empire. But this empire is going to be at war with the Ptolemaic Empire down in the south for a period of about 400 years, two to three, three or 400 years, somewhere around that neighborhood. Which little tiny nation sits as a buffer zone in between? Israel. 
And one of the things that you're going to find in this chapter is that constantly, constantly, Israel is going to be in between these two warring nations. And they're going to have a lot of consequences as a, as a, as a result of that. Now, several leaders later, and we're going to get to this toward the end of the chapter, you're going to see the rise of Antiochus Epiphanes and why he's so important. We'll talk about that again here in just a moment. In verses 36 through, or sorry, verses 5 through 35, it's going to talk about the Seleucid Empire. It's going to talk about the rivalry between the Ptolemaic Empire and the Seleucid Empire. This is also known as the time between the Testaments. Scholars like to call this the intertestamental period, right? Um, so that's the period that we're talking about here. And then in verses 36 through 39, it's going to laser focus in all the way down to this willful king. And this is the guy that it really wants to get to. This is the real heart of the message that the angel was trying to bring to Daniel because he wants to know what's going to happen in the future of Israel. Well, guess what? Israel's future is very much wrapped up in this figure known as the Antichrist. Okay? And then in verses 40 through 45, you're going to have an Armageddon scenario. And then we're going to get into chapter 12, hopefully by next week. And guess what chapter 12 is going to cover? Essentially, the same thing as the book of Revelation. By the time we get to chapter 12, you're going to witness the resurrection of the dead at the very end of the age. So we're almost there, guys. Okay, verses 2 through 20 of chapter 11 have already passed. Prophetically, it's been fulfilled. Verses 21 through 35 apparently has elements of both, things that have been fulfilled and things that set up a picture of things to come. And then in verses 36 through 45, um, most people believe have not happened as of yet. Now, we're about to go into verse 1. I want to say one more thing before we get into this. I love this chapter, but a lot of people have a hard time with this chapter because a lot of people don't like history. But let me tell you something. My favorite chapter in the book of Daniel is Daniel chapter 9 because it's the big prophecy that talks about the first and the second coming of Jesus Christ, right? To me, that's one of the most exciting chapters. But this chapter, chapter 11, contains in the Bible the most detailed, and I mean detailed prophecy of future events down all the way to the, to the intrigue and political maneuvering that takes place between these two empires. So much so that most modern scholars, including the ones that I went to school with at Lipscomb University, did not believe that Daniel wrote this part of Daniel. They believe that Daniel didn't write this part of Daniel, that it's so specific, that it details things that, that, that there's no possible way that Daniel could have known, and so it must have been written much, much, much later. Let me tell you something. I don't believe that one whit. And I'll tell you why. I'm going to give you a proof in a minute. Hopefully we'll have time to get there, but I'm going to give you one proof that'll shoot a hole in that theory, and it will not float, okay? And we'll get to that here in just a second. So let's get into it, verse 1. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, we're in chapter 11, <clears throat> first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. Now this is the angel Gabriel. He's talking to Daniel. He's saying that all the way back when Darius first started reigning, I was involved in the reigns of these kings. That's what he's talking about here, okay? It's a flashback, if you will. And then verse 2, now, then, I tell you the truth. Three more kings will arise in Persia, and then a fourth, who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power <clears throat> by his wealth, he will stir everyone up against the kingdom of Greece. Now, the angel uh, of chapter 10, he announces three kings. We know from history 
that these are Cyrus, uh, Cambysius, Darius, Histopes, which is known as, his name was Smyrtus. You can read about that in Herodotus, by the way, for those of you history scholars who like to play around with history. Um, but uh, he helps establish Darius as a king in the first year of his reign. And then this fourth king that he's talking about here is Xerxes, which you've heard about before, I'm sure, many, many times. We've talked about Xerxes in the past. Um, but it says here that he's going to instigate trouble with the Greeks, which did happen, by the way, in about 486, 465, somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, he instituted tax reforms. He became very powerful. He trained over uh, two million warriors for about four years. He built barges and bridges, and um, he attacks Greece in about 480 B.C. Now look at verse 3. Then a mighty king will arise who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has arisen, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven, and it will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power to be nor will it have the power he exercised because his empire will be uprooted and given to other. Now again, we've already covered this in chapter eight. That's Alexander the Great. He dies at a young age. His kingdom is divided up by his four generals. We've talked about that many, many times. So let's go ahead and move on. Verse five. Now the king of the south will become strong. That's why I brought this map up here to you. The king of the south, Ptolemy, right there, one of the four generals, probably the, the most powerful one. It says he will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger than he, and he will rule his own kingdom with great power. Now, Ptolemy I was also known as Soter, or Soter. And he took Egypt and Seleucus, Nicator, uh, took Syria. And these two poles of power led to 150 years or so of warfare, again, between these two kingdoms. And every time they would go to war, they would trample all the way through Israel, every time. Okay? They would get beat down every time. And this happened for, for again, about 150 years. Happens all the way up until a new upstart on the, on the banks of the, uh, was it, I um, can't remember what river they were on, Tiber River. Little upstart known as Rome starts growing in power and starts pushing to the west. Okay? These guys are going to keep fighting until Rome rises to power. We'll talk about Rome when we get there. So chapter 11 is going to chronicle this warfare between the king of the south, Egypt, and the king of the north, Syria. Okay, we all have that in our minds? If we can keep that in our minds, some of this stuff, it'll, it'll be a lot more clearer as we get through it, okay? Um, so Ptolemy was one of Alexander's wisest, most capable generals. He, he grew very powerful. Later on, Ptolemy II uh, comes to power. He's even more powerful than his uh, predecessor was. And uh, how many people have ever heard of the, the great library of Alexandria, Egypt? Okay, Ptolemy II had happened under, that, under his reign. So just know in the background, while we're talking about these biblical events, there's other world events that are taking place. This library was world-renowned. If I'm not mistaken, it one of the seven wonders of the ancient world? I believe it was, okay? Um, there's a lot of things that are happening during this time. How many people have ever heard of the Septuagint? The Septuagint, I'll say it a little bit longer. The Septuagint was when the... The Alexandrian Jews, because the, the language had changed so much, Greek was now becoming the known language of the land, there were a lot more people that knew Greek than knew their own native language, Hebrew. And so there arisen a need, there arose a need for a new translation. This is kind of like 1611, everybody knew Elizabethan English. Everybody walked around and said, thee and thou, right? But then later on down the road, people don't talk like that anymore, and so they needed to update the translation 
so that you could speak it more colloquially, if you will. So the Septuagint translation, what does it mean? Uh, you've seen it abbreviated LXX, right? Which is the Roman numerals that stand for 70. And uh, according to history, there were 70 scholars that translated the Old Testament Hebrew into Greek. And by the way, that's one of the most important translations that we have in New Testament studies today because it helps us to capture a lot of times what we can't see from some of the later Hebrew manuscripts that we have, okay? Um, any math people in here? Any math people? Anybody know a man by the name of Euclid? Nobody's in the math in this room. Okay. okay. <laughs> you guys are my kindred folks because I'm not either, okay? Um, Euclid is teaching geometry at this time down in Egypt, okay? So just realize there's a lot of this history going on behind the scenes. Okay. So Ptolemy in 321 B.C. comes up here and he attacks Jerusalem. And Israel, he takes it. He takes it as his, his uh, possession, annexes the, the, the land into his empire, if you will. And um, he loses the, he, uh, the, the land is lost by Ptolemy's rival Antigonus, who was sitting on the, the, uh, sitting on the throne up there at the Seleucid Empire, Antigonus. After the Battle of Gaza in 312 B.C., Ptolemy reclaims it. Seleucus I, Nicator, in 312 B.C., who uh, cooperates with Ptolemy, he, made, he makes himself the master of Babylon. And uh, again, there's just this back and forth going on. Now get with me in verse 6, and let's pick back up. After some years, they will become allies. The daughter of the king of the south, down here, will go up to the king of the north, and they will make an alliance. But she will not retain her power, and he and his power will not last. In those days, she will be betrayed together with her royal escort and her father and the one who supported her. Now, let's break that down. Again, that's very specific, isn't it? You think about these prophecies. That's very, very, very specific. I'm going to share something with you here, and it's going to blow you away. After a lapse of several years, and by the way, you can read about this in 2 Chronicles 18, verse 2, because it talks about the same thing, there is a political marriage that's arranged. Now, ladies, I hate to break it to you, but back in those days... You didn't get to go pick whatever man you wanted, right? You, you had arrangements. And they would, uh, in order to create these political alliances, a lot of times they would take a daughter and they would marry it to somebody down here and they would sit on the throne and they would use that, raising up a children to hopefully form some type of political bond, if you will. I saw a hand over here. Oh, okay. Did you get it? Okay, good. I'm going too fast. I'll slow it down just a hair. So a political marriage was arranged by Antiochus II, okay? You have Antiochus II up here. He's on the throne. His name is Theos, by the way, in his actual name. Antiochus, by the way, is a throne name, like Caesar or Pharaoh, all right? So his name is Theos, and Ptolemy II, Philadelphus, that's his name, he marries his daughter, Bernice. But here's the problem. You're going to do this marriage down here between this, this daughter that's here and this, this king that's sitting up here. But there was one caveat. Antiochus was required to divorce his own wife. He was married to a woman by the name of Laodicea, which, by the way, does that sound familiar? Laodicea? Laodicea becomes a city, right, a little bit later on. And the city's named after this woman. But he's required to divorce his own wife, Laodicea, to facilitate this arrangement. This Egyptian, Bernice, is unable to prevail against Laodicea. And so she, um, Laodicea says, you know what, I'm tired of this. I'm not going to deal with it no more. And so she poisons her husband. 
And then she goes and she poisons Bernice. And they had had a child together by this time, and she poisons the child. And then she takes her own son, which is, uh, let's see, uh, Seleucus II, Callinicus, and she places him on the throne. Now, again, here's what I want to point out to you really quick. These prophecies are so specific, aren't they? And you have so many modern scholars that say there's just no way. There's no way. I mean, all the way down to telling us that that there was going to be a political marriage and she was going to revolt against it and she was going to kill everybody in the throne. You know, all the way down. Let me tell you something. The book of Daniel was already written in the Septuagint and finished before these events ever even occurred. Which one? Laodicea and Bernice. Yep. So you had um, Bernice, was, she was the one from Egypt, okay? Laodicea was the one from the Seleucid Empire, okay? And uh, Antiochus had to divorce Laodicea. Um, uh, he had, oh, I'm sorry, no, 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 I got it backwards. He had to divorce Bernice, but La- and, and Laodicea decided to take vengeance on her own, okay? So here's the issue. These things were already codified in the book of Daniel by the time these events already happened. So you can't say, you can't say that they were written after the event. And I think that's one of the reasons why God, in his own orchestration, helping us preserve God's word down to the centuries, had these things written down in Greek, in the Septuagint, by this point. So, fascinating. Okay. Sir. Yes. If he had known... If he had walked, if, if, if they had walked into the uh, Alexandrian library <laughs> and pulled out that brand new Septuagint that had been written, he might have picked up on a few things. That's very true. <coughs> Sandy, did you get, I want to make sure you got it. So Bernice is the Egyptian woman. Okay, and Laodicea is the other lady. Okay, got it. Verse 7. Well, after she goes crazy and kills everybody, um, and kills, uh, specifically kills, um, uh, poisons uh, Bernice, what do you think is going to happen at this point? It's going to be a revolt, right? It's going to be a justice being sought. So look at verse 7. So one from her family line will arise to take her place, and he will attack the forces of the king of the north and enter his fortress, and he will fight against them and be victorious. Apparently now, we know from history, that this is about talking about Ptolemy II. Because here's what happens. After, this, after the, his sister is murdered, he's the brother of Bernice, okay? He goes up and he declares war on Syria. And I mean he declares war. He took vengeance on the, Syri- the, the Seleucid Empire, the Syrian Empire. And so he pushes north, and it says in history that he pushed all the way back up into Babylon. So... He's pretty upset about this whole thing. Big, big incursion from the Syrian Empire from the south. Look at verse 8. He will also seize their gods, their metal images, and their valuable articles of silver and gold and carry them off to Egypt. For some years, he will leave the king of the north alone. So he's going to make this big old push up into here. He's going to plunder them just absolutely devastate them politically and militarily. He's going to take all this gold and silver back. And it says that after that time, there's a period of peace for a little while. Okay? Now, let's go back to history, see what actually happened. 
We know that Ptolemy II, according to the annals of history, that here's, here's was his spoils. We know exactly how much he took because we have written Egyptian records that tell us these things. I love this. He took 4,000 talents of gold, 40,000 talents of silver, and 25,000 idols. Now, what does that mean when you take somebody's idols? What, is that, what's that, what do you think they're doing there when you take their idols? Yeah. My God's bigger than your God. See, I got your gods. They're down here in our territory now. Ha ha. Right? It's like when they captured the Ark of the Covenant. Remember the Philistines when they took the Ark of the Covenant? They were trying to do the same thing. But then God did something really interesting with their God. <laughs> Made the statue of their God fall down before the Ark of the Covenant. I love that story. Verse 9. So then the king of the north. Now they're going to re retaliate. Then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south but will retreat to his own country. His sons will prepare for war and assemble a great army, which will sweep on like an irresistible flood and carry the battle as far as his fortresses. Now, here's what happens from history. After two years, Seleucus reorganizes. He builds up his military again. He marches south against Egypt, and he gets clobbered. <laughs> he tries. But then he has to go back, just like the Scripture tells us, just like the prophecy foretells. He did not make it, and he has to go back again. Kind of like uh, what happens, remember Napoleon? I think it was um, Napoleon goes into Moscow, Moscow, and if you remember, he went in with half a million troops. He came out with 10,000. Came out with 10,000. Napoleon Bonaparte got clobbered, okay? So it's very, very similar to that. So in 312 B.C., down here in Egypt, 312 B.C., a large Egyptian army led by Ptolemy IV, this guy's known as Philippator. I love that name, don't you? Philippator. Um, he marches through Judea until he's met in Lebanon by an, another Antiochus who's sitting on the throne who routed it. He captures many Judean cities both west and east of the Jordan River. And initially, Ptolemy's army is much larger than that of Antiochus III. And then in the spring of 219 B.C. at the Battle of Raphia, which was 20 miles south of Gaza, which is right about there, uh, Antiochus commanded about 60,000 men and Ptolemy 70,000 men. Well, they go to war again, this time in Israel, and Antiochus is defeated with the loss of 10,000 infantry and 300 cavalry. Ptolemy finally signs a, a peace treaty with Antiochus III, Uh, they, they sign a peace treaty. Ptolemy IV celebrates his victory. He goes through a tour of the eastern Mediterranean provinces, including Jerusalem. And he's, he's so excited about this victory, right? Egypt has now pushed back up. He's reclaimed Israel. And this guy says, you know what? I want to go visit the temple. And he says, I've heard about this Jewish temple. And he's heard about the Holy of Holies. And he wants to go inside the Holy of Holies. Well... Before he gets a chance to go into the Holy of Holies, he is stricken with paralysis, unable to go. And so because he's stricken with paralysis, he has to retreat back to Egypt, and he is so upset and so angry, and he starts taking it out on Israeli Jewish villages all the way back down to Egypt. Now, I find that fascinating. Why? Because the Bible says that there's only one person that ever went into the Holy of Holies and set up an idol. That's Antiochus IV and Pythides. Right? 
Remember when we talked in Daniel chapter 9, Jesus himself in Matthew 24, he says something very specific is going to happen in the future. When you see the abomination of desolation that was spoken of by Daniel the prophet, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee into the hills and don't even look back, right? Well, you look forward to the future and you say, has that ever happened yet? Now, some people believe that when Rome destroyed Israel in 70 AD, that they erected an idol in the Holy of Holies. No, they did not. Because if you go and you look at what Titus and Vespasian did in the summer of, of 68 leading into 70 AD, they did erect an idol to Zeus, but they put it in the outer courts. Or, excuse me, they put it in the holy place. They did not enter into the Holy of Holies and put it there. So what does that mean? That means that 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is still going to happen one day. It says the man of lawlessness, the little horn of the future, is going to rise up one day, and somehow, some way, there's a lot of people that conjecture. You've got uh, premillennialists that are all over the place today, and they believe that one day there's going to be a new temple, and that there will be an antichrist who will come into that temple, and he will declare himself to be God. I don't know. Here's the thing: you don't have to have a rebuilt temple for that prophecy to be fulfilled, do you, Sandy? No, you can do a tabernacle. All you need is a tabernacle, and that'd be a lot easier to set up than a new temple, wouldn't it? Yeah. Throw that thing up real fast, okay? Now, there are other, let me be fair, there are other people that believe, no, that these, these things have already been fulfilled and they have their own reasons for that. I don't hold to the, those views, okay? Uh, but, but they're out there, I'm just be fair. Um, did we have a second bell or no? Was that the first or second bell? First bell? Okay, we got another half hour, good. Verse 11. Then the king of the south, Egypt... The king of the south will march out in rage and fight against the king of the north who will raise a large army, but it will be defeated. When the army is carried off, the king of the south will be filled with pride and he'll slaughter many thousands and yet he will not remain triumphant because the king of the north will muster another army larger than the first and after several years he will advance with a huge army fully equipped. In those times many will rise against the king of the south those who are violent among your own people will rebel in fulfillment of the vision, but without success. Again, these things, I know it's tedious. Trust me, when I study chapter 11, it's tedious for me as a preacher, okay? Because you have to wade through a lot of history, and I know a lot of people don't like history. But what's amazing to me is that these things were written in stone, literally in the Septuagint, a hundred or so years before they were even fulfilled. Does this not give you confidence in the Word of God? It should it should give you absolute confidence in the Word of God that when God says something, He means it. And He's going to do it. And He's going to fulfill it exactly the way that it's written in the Scriptures. And does that not give you hope about the things that are yet to be fulfilled in our lifetime? Possibly. And certainly in the future or the end of the age? Yes, ma'am. I believe. After the death of Ptolemy IV, I'll go through this really quick and we'll, this will be a good place to stop. And next week, this will almost bring us up to Antiochus IV, crazy man, Epiphanes, which is going to be the main thrust of this chapter. But after the death of Ptolemy IV, his son, who's only four years old, is placed on the throne. He's known as Ptolemy V. Now, obviously, he had caretakers and counselors that, you know, whatever, but for political purposes, they placed this kid on the throne, right? Twelve years after the Battle of Raphia, Antiochus III sets out with a greater army, just like the Scripture says, uh, then before, he goes, to con he goes for a conquest of the Egyptian territory. Um, the many that stood up against the king of the south included Antiochus, 
his ally, Philip of Macedon, over here. See Macedon? He was the other general, one of the four. And so he partners up with these guys to go against the Seleucid Empire. And there's... Yes, Philip of Macedon. That's exactly right. Very good. Um, and then in 200 B.C., you have an Egyptian mercenary. I'm sorry, let me back up a little bit. I think I got ahead of myself. So the many that stands up against the king of the south included Antiochus, his ally, Philip of Macedon, and there were other vassals of the Egyptian empire that didn't want to be under the thumb of Egypt anymore. So you have several vassal states here, the entire Seleucid empire. He partners up with Philip of the Macedonian empire, and they come against the king of Egypt. That's what it's talking about here. And that was the second bell. So let me read this and we'll stop. In 200 B.C., a mercenary by the name of Scopus came up to Judea, and he tried to take uh, Judea from Antiochus. Again, it's a throne name. He has a little bit of success, not much, but he's defeated by 100,000 troops at Sidon. If you remember over here on the coast, you have Tyre and Sidon, and that's where that battle took place in about 198 B.C. Nobody was able to stand against Antiochus III, which is why he is known in history as Antiochus the Great. Now, this is not the same Antiochus that we're about to read about known as the madman. And because we're out of time, we'll talk about him next Sunday. God bless you. See you in a moment for worship.